1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from my fabulous friends. Hey everybody, it's Adrian. And if you're listening to this silky, silky smooth voice, you know what it is. You got yourself another episode of the Dirty Rotten Church Kids podcast. Hello everyone and welcome back. Welcome back. It's so good to be in your ear holes again. We established last month that's a normal thing that normal people say on a regular basis. Listen, welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to have you. I want to give a special shout out to my uh, last episode co-hosts. I had the wonderful Mason Menega and the notorious, I don't don't know why I said notorious, the notoriously amazing Kevin Garcia. It was just absolutely special to have them on that episode. It was fun having like a group of folks who are just, you know, shooting the shit, chit-chatting. We're talking about short-term missions. So if you're just tuning into this episode and you didn't, you know, have the opportunity, I would definitely recommend you circle back And check that one out. I think you're going to absolutely love it. We talk about how we were, you know, informed and brought up uh, understanding short-term missions. We talked about the ways in which that changed and evolved as we went through our own faith change. We had uh, stories sent in from the bad apples. I used to say we had submissions sent in from the bad apples, but I had too many folks being like, hey, stop telling me to submit things to you because I've been forced to submit my entire life. So voice uh, memos have been sent in by the bad apples. They were absolutely eye-opening to hear, as always, right? These are things that are so distinct and so different, and yet in some interesting way, they feel so familiar. Yeah, it was just great to talk to them. Um, so I love it. Any opportunity I have to have friends of the show who happen to be friends of mine come in and, and, and check it out. So it was an absolute, absolute treat. While we're on the topic of absolute treats, I have some cool news, some big personal news in the life of Adrian. But you know what? I've, I've decided to start pushing the what's going on in the world of Adrian to the second half of the episode because I've heard too many notes from y'all. You're like, listen, I don't want to hear Adrian talk about himself in the beginning. I want to jump right in. I want the meat. I want the potatoes. And I want to get right into the good stuff. And so that's what we're absolutely going to do before I blather on any further on this episode. I had the absolute privilege of speaking with Portia Brown. Portia Brown is a sex educator and a coach. I got a chance to talk to her about purity and her upbringing. I, man, I was like, if I had planned this better, I would have dialed this in such that Portia's episode was episode 69 because I'm 11 years old. I'm a 13 year old kid. Actually, it, it, I can't take credit for that. That would have, actually was, was Blair over at Talk Purity to me. She was like, you got to try and get a sex educator on episode 69. And I didn't even plan it well enough to do. So we're going to call this the inaugural 69 episode, but that's neither here nor there. This conversation I had with Portia was great. 
it was just lovely to talk to her about her experience within kind of this sort of evangelical framework and the ways that she is still kind of experiencing that within her context and the people in her circle and how like the work she's doing is has not only been so serving to her, but she's been able to see all the ways in which it has kind of helped other folks with similar backgrounds kind of shake off, right? Those those chains of uh, kind of purity, trauma, and all the bullshittery. Absolutely dig into it. I think you're going to love it. As always, right? These conversations are with real people, with their own experiences, their lived contexts and frameworks, and all these things often come with it, a spectrum of spirituality and lack thereof. So when I ask these questions, when we have these conversations, I love to just have people share with me where they are at in their process. And sometimes that looks like being Christian and deconstructing down to nothing like a secular humanist or perhaps agnosticism. Sometimes they circle back to kind of this new iteration of spirituality or, or even Christianity, right? They refer to themselves as Christian and all of these things I want to be able to make room for and, and have enough space at the table for everyone to bring their entire selves in the same way that I hope that you feel when you listen to the show that you have the opportunity to bring your full self to the table. So without any further ado, I want you to get into this episode, pull up a chair, get something comfy, make some coffee or some tea, get a blanket, or if you're driving, then eyes on the road, pay very sharp attention to where you're going. Okay. That's safety first. Without any further ado, this is my conversation with Portia Brown. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. My next guest is a sex coach, writer, and content creator, specializing in helping people change their lives by reclaiming their right to pleasure and living an authentic, pleasure-filled life. Bad Apples, let's give it up for Portia Brown. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for Hi. That. Thanks for joining. Thanks for doing this. Of course. Thank you for having me. Where about Portia in the world are you located? I am born and raised in Michigan, but I currently live in Brooklyn, New York. Oh, great. How long have you been in Brooklyn? It will be six years uh, next month in May. No kidding. Yeah. Do you identify as like a, as a New Yorker now? Absolutely not. I'm a Midwest girl <laughs> to, my core, okay. to my core. I have a deep love and affection for New York City, but I will never identify. I could be here a hundred years and I will always yeah. identify as a Midwesterner. That is great. Yeah, I moved down here to like the Miami, Fort Lauderdale area. In maybe like 15 years ago now. Mm. And so at this point, even though I am like, I don't know, I'm like from New York, I'm from New Jersey. Everyone's like, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've been adopted. I've been kicked into that to that camp, you know, so yeah. it is what it is. A lot of East Coasters end up down there. So that's true. It's like the New York, New Jersey of the South. So yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. That is great. Uh, well, listen, Portia, thank you so much for doing this. A friend of mine by the name of Blair over at Talk Purity to Me, I had Blair on the show, wonderful human being, and she was like, you need to get Portia Brown on the <laughs> show. 
anyway, it just means the world that you would, you would be on, on Dirty Rotten Church Kids. So thank you. Yeah, of course. I love Blair. Blair was actually one of the first Instagram accounts I followed when I started my sex positive sex education account. I was like, yes, people are talking about this. Let's go. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen the conversation become more and more normalized as the years have gone on when you started your account? I would say more common, more frequent. I don't think normal is equivalent to frequent because just as the conversation itself is becoming more frequent, the pushback seems to be getting just as loud. So it's hard to tell. It's hard to Mm, say. mm. When you think of pushback in your context, what are the pushback that you've personally experienced? Gosh, where do I start? (laughs) Well, when I talk about sex positivity, when I talk about my own intimate life, I hear a lot of backlash in terms of women that are maybe not in a place where they're ready to fully embrace their sexuality and they use either religious norms or just their own limiting beliefs as justification to say what I'm doing and the way that I live and present is incorrect and wrong. People who think it's inappropriate for me to talk about self-pleasure or pleasure at all. People, most recently, I made a post that said, pleasure is not something that you have to earn. And some man left a comment, reposted it and DM'd me stating that like, that leads to a hedonist lifestyle that leads to a hedonist mentality. And I let that thought pattern go years ago. And you know, you have to work hard in order to earn your pleasure. And I'm like, good for you. (laughs) That's the way you want to live, babes. I'm so happy for you. But like, I don't believe my pleasure has to be earned. Mm, Got it. Wow. As soon as I asked it, I probably would have guessed that there is some, in certain spaces, probably some religious undertones, which I think kind of brings me to my first real question. And I realized I normally jump right into this question, but I kind of skipped it. Portia, were you a church kid? And what did your upbringing look like? Was there any sort of religious spaces for you growing up in the Midwest? Absolutely. I am from a deeply religious Midwestern Black working class family. I grew up in the church. I grew up in a non-denominational Christian church. I was literally at a crossroads when I turned about 18 or 19, where I thought I'm either going to become like a youth minister or I'm going to start having sex. <laughs> and I started having sex. <laughs> yeah. As one does. As yeah, one yeah, does. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. So most of my family is very religious. My parents are, my grandparents are and were. My older siblings most definitely are. I have a brother that's a deacon. I have two brothers that are deacons. I have a sister that like is the lead singer in the choir. Like, yeah, it runs deep. I was a church kid and there are still parts of me that identify as a church kid in many ways and in many not ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are the parts of you when you look at your framework that you're like, this is still like, you know, I'm cool with it. Yeah, I, uh, my love of music began in, in the church, mm. like my affinity for making music, for listening to it, for seeking it out during spiritual practice started in the church. You know, in the black community, the church is our community. It's our home base. It's our second, sometimes third and fourth home. So when I go home and I, I do attend service with my mom, I still feel like that sort of sheltering and warmth and love and affection and all of those things, even though they're hollering horrible things from the pulpit about the way that I live. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's kind of a, 
it's a, you know, as you know, it's, it's a tough battle and it's a delicate dance to do. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned, you know, you have like a religious family really involved in a lot of different ways. What's, you know, what are holidays like? Does it ever get weird or is it pretty cool or? My family, we have very avoidant attachment style about a lot of things. <laughs> Mine too. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. holidays for me, they're fine. So I'm a sex coach and a sex educator and everyone knows that. I don't try to hide that. I'm a queer black woman and everyone, if they are viewing my content, they know that. It never comes up. People congratulate me on my success as an entrepreneur and nothing else outside of a select few, like my baby sister, who is in the same fight that I am. There is a lot of things that I have to readjust to when I go home and I'm with my family that I don't do. There's praying (laughs) constantly. There's constant mention of scripture and references to God in a way that I don't really identify with anymore. So yeah, it's always a time machine, like going back into time and remembering like, oh, most of my family is still in this part of the conversation, even though I've evolved to to something else. Yeah, a lot of that tracks. It feels like sometimes when I interact with my family or even like old church friends, that doesn't have to just be family. It feels both familiar and completely alien at the same time. It's kind of a mindfuck. Yes, I can identify with that fully. It's like I even sometimes find myself, me and my partner, we were just talking about fasting and I started talking about like the importance of fasting and praying. Like you can't just fast, you have to fast and pray because this, 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 this. And all of these things just started coming out of me and I was like... (laughs) Where, where was that? Where did that come from? Yeah, if you fast without praying, you're not doing it for the right reasons. No. That's, a, that's called a diet. That's according to, <laughs> that's, to my yeah, Bible. Yeah, that's an eating disorder <laughs> at that point. Oh, man. Okay, so what changed for you? You said you kind of came to this sort of crossroads. Was it maybe your faith that nudged you or a faith change that nudged you? Was it opportunity? Was it interest? Can you talk about what sent you down to the path you're on now? Yeah, it was a plethora of different things. So first of all, in my late high school years, my family began to deteriorate. My parents' marriage began to deteriorate. In that moment, when that started to happen, and I was like 15 or 16, that brought me closer to my faith, closer to my church community, and closer specifically to the youth program at my church and the friends that I had there. And as time went on, and things worsened, (laughs) despite my prayer, despite our family doing everything that we could, it got to the point where my parents would, would drop us off at church, my sister and I, and they were not going because they couldn't even sit together in the pew. And as that started to happen, I started to think, what, what are we actually even doing? Right? Like, this is a moment we should be going to God mm-hmm. for this challenge, for this issue. And instead, like, everyone is moving away. And it caused me to really have a lot of deep reflections around why I actually was going to church, who was there supporting me, why I felt like I couldn't talk about what was happening at home at church for fear that I would bring shame to my family. Like, you don't want to air out dirty laundry, blah, blah, blah. You know, this is a place you're supposed to be able to be completely honest in your true self. And I started noticing that shit just wasn't tracking. And at the same time, I was blossoming into a young woman I was having more and more experiences that were making it clearer and clearer to me that I was queer. I was not heterosexual. And that was really terrifying. And I felt like I didn't have anywhere to go or anyone that I could speak to about that. And 
then I met a guy and I was like, I could really just continue to go on this journey of being a good Christian. Me and my sister took a purity pledge and like did the whole thing. Mm. And I thought I could do that or I could see what the world is like. (laughs) And I chose to see what the world was like. And at that point, I felt like I'd fallen from grace and I had all of these, you know, all the things that come up. But I really liked having sex. I was like, this is really great. This is really fun. And it led me to more openly explore my own sexuality. At the same time, I was going off to college. I was being exposed to so many different people. I was taking one of the things that really interested me once I got to school was learning about religious history and other forms of religion other than my own. And that just blew the lid off of everything. I took like a world religion 200 level class my sophomore year and it was like game over from there on. And I sort of went through a rabbit hole of trying to learn as much as I could about the main other faiths in the world, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Islam, and making comparisons to the faith that I had been practicing. And I discovered that all of these things that I was taught to be afraid of and separate myself from that were bad and wrong and weren't the right faith were way more similar to my belief system than I had been led to believe. Mm. And that really just began my journey of deconstruction that of course I'm still on and still working through definitely began my journey of formulating my own relationship with God, with the divine, with the universe, as I'm coming to know it now and coming into it now So yeah, sex in college changed the game. I think that's pretty much what happens to most people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that that sounds about right. What was it like to be handed a particular story about your body through your Christian framework? And then you make this decision, you're like, oh my God, the world is so much bigger and so much more enjoyable than I ever would have expected. Can you talk me and the listeners through like what it was like to circle back and then move forward? What, What was that like? It felt like a constant cycling through of confirmation and feeling closer to my faith and also then feeling the opposite and feeling very far away and feeling like, wow, this thing is so fake. For like, probably from age 19 until I was like 24, I was having whiplash of being like, oh my gosh, I'm finding out this thing. I'm finding out these facts or I'm having this experience that's making me feel more confirmed in the Christian faith that I grew up in. And then a few months later, something else would happen. I made a new discovery, take another class, have a different conversation with someone that made me feel like I don't want to identify with that. That doesn't feel resonant with me. So it was just this constant recalibration and fluctuation and not necessarily confusion, but just sort of watching myself walk through all of the stages of discovery Mm. and finally getting to a place more recently where I'm able to sort of synthesize and customize my beliefs for what works for me and what feels true and resonant with who I am in this world. Wow. I love that. I feel like uh, for a lot of us, the idea of customizing our beliefs was like flies in the face of everything we were, we were handed. Yes. Right. Cause you can't be a cafeteria Christian, right? (laughs) Yes. Um, But what if what a freedom to be able to kind of like, like, no, like I, I built this house. I can decide what color I want to paint the walls and what furniture wants to go in here and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it still is hard to talk about with other practicing Christians, like very, very devout and sort of old school Christians, because I do get that like, oh, you can't cherry pick and da 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 da, and the Bible says this, this, this. And I just am like, that's not the way I believe. I'm sorry that we don't agree. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry that I found a different way to live my life. Right, right. On your website, you talk about the idea of helping the people you work with live a life full of pleasure, joy, and fulfillment. You talk about getting to the root, the root of all narratives you have about yourself, sex, and pleasure. Can you talk about that? What does that mean? And what made that idea of kind of excavation, why did that become so important to you in your coaching practice? As a part of my journey, as a part of my deconstruction journey, in close parallel paths, was my journey of sexual liberation. My journey of sexual liberation started at about age 23 or 24. I had just gotten out of a relationship and I chose to take a vow of semi-celibacy where I wasn't interacting with other people, but I was interacting with myself. And through that, I realized like, I think we're supposed to feel this good on a regular basis is what I figured out. Or at least I came to the conclusion, I want to feel this good on a regular basis. And I started identifying the different parts of my life, sexual and non-sexual, that made me feel that fully alive, fully embodied, fully human feeling, whether it be sex, whether it be staring at the ocean or going to a live concert and feeling the vibration of the music and the instruments against your body, having a deep belly laugh with someone you love a whole lot. Like I, I just was like, I don't think I'm supposed to like suffer. <laughs> and a lot of, a lot of my upbringing and in the faith was like around sacrifice and denying myself and suffering basically in an effort to, you know, receive the ultimate reward of going to heaven. I decided that as I was, you know, sort of customizing my faith and belief that that was a central part of my beingness and my belief and my my need on this earth. And when it comes to my critique of modern day Christianity, it closely relates to my critique of white supremacy in the American culture, capitalism, and all of those things. A lot of the denial and the suffering and the lack of information the lack of understanding around who we are as sexual beings, all of that is tied up in a white supremacist mission to keep people disembodied, separated from their pleasure, separated from their joy. This is also heavily, heavily, heavily influenced by Adrienne Marie Brown's Pleasure Activism, her book, Pleasure Activism. If you're interested in learning about that, you should definitely pick up that book. But if we finally decide I'm allowed to feel good and experience pleasure. Capitalism doesn't stand a fucking chance, right? White supremacy doesn't stand a fucking chance. If we're actually able to tap into what it means to forge a community with each other that's centered around what is best for you and what's going to make everybody in this space feel really good, there's absolutely no way that the society as we know it can survive. And for me, helping the individuals that I work with, helping the individuals that are in my online community, realize that and tap into that and learn to take 5, 10, 15 minutes, small moments, big moments where they can make themselves feel good and remember what it feels like to be fully embodied and fully present in their human flesh and in this experience is a contribution to that effort to help us all realize like, 
I know we've been told like capitalism says we have to work really hard until we're like 65 and then we'll retire and then we'll have like a good 20 years of being alive and, and like getting to relax. But I think that that can start now. Like the feeling good of it all can start now. And why say feeling good for like the last 20 years of my life and not my entire life? Maybe there's something wrong with this system that we have set up that it doesn't center that or it doesn't honor that. And a lot of people hear that and they think that's kind of a hedonist way to live. What are we going to do if everybody on the planet is sitting around like jerking it all day? (laughs) What are we like? We're not going to get anything done. We're not going to have any roads. Who's going to serve me my Chipotle? Like what are we, how will society function? And that's about my pay grade girl. Like I don't actually. Yeah. Your Chipotle is not my Yeah. Your Chipotle and your roads. Not my issue. Uh, That's a larger question. But what I do know is that our bodies as human beings are designed and wired for pleasure and for feeling good. We have five senses and those senses anchor us in this body and this human form. And all of our senses have the ability to be pleasure centers for us. That's not by mistake. That's not by accident, right? If you're born with a vulva, you have an organ that is its only function is giving you pleasure. And that's the clitoris, right? It doesn't do anything else but make you feel good. That's not by accident and that's not by mistake. And of course, again, feeling good and pleasure goes so far beyond sex and physical pleasure, right? There are so many other ways that we as a society can move towards feeling good. But my choice is sex because it's the most taboo and it brings up the most shadow work for us to do as a society. So I'm taking it on. Oh my God. Portia, you have said so many incredible things and I'm like, I don't even know where I want to start because it's also good. The idea of pleasure as almost an act of resistance against systems that benefit from our disembodiment is fucking wild, but it makes perfect sense. The way you put that was so perfect. When you're going through these coaching sessions with all these folks and the folks in your online community. What has been the response when you share like, oh yeah, like your pleasure is directly tied to your nine to five, you know, or the, or the systems that you participate in or, or you know, what is the response to this when, when you have these conversations? It's a variety of things and mostly it is frustration because the path that we've been given working a corporate nine to five, even being a parent, being a stay at home mom, being an entrepreneur, it's all rooted in sacrifice. I remember when I was working an office job in 2017, one of the things I noticed is I was rewarded for like not paying attention to my body for like having to pee, but being like, I'm just going to tough it out and finish this email or being really hungry or really thirsty or being like, nope, but I'm in a conference meeting. Like I can't leave to go get a sip of water. And I was rewarded for like doing that shit Mm. because that's what we're told that we have to do in small ways and in big ways, right? Staying after work, even though your kid has a soccer game or you have an appointment to do this, denying yourself in worship of capitalism. So the primary response is frustration. It's like, how do I carve out time and space for pleasure when I also, my survival is tied up in me participating in this thing? And that's a bigger question. 
that again is something that you have to learn to customize for where you are in your journey. I'm not telling anybody to quit their job and take food off of their table, right? I realize this is a bigger, more systemic issue, which is why I do the work that I do. But that's something that you have to really think about. What are the small ways that I can stop participating? Does it mean I take my email off of my phone and I set hard boundaries with my work? Does it mean that I make an appointment with myself every week to go find pleasure? Does it mean that when I'm at lunch at work, I don't do it while I'm doing emails? I sit with my food and enjoy the pleasure of having a meal. Like, What are the little ways you can take your power back and build on that again and again and again? But primarily people are just like, well, now I know this and I realize this and I'm awake to this, but what do I do and where do I go next? Mm. I love that so much of what you were describing is the act of like handing back the healing process to be customized through the individual person's context, mm-hmm. because that is the complete opposite of what so many of us are brought up in. We're like, hey, this is the solution. Like the problem is you and the problem is your body and the problem is all the bad things you did because someone ate the apple. And here is like the one size fits all solution. Right. And it rhymes with the smut of Smeezus, Right. And like, But it is very interesting that in the work that you do, all the way down to its practical application is about handing agency back. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. And I think at the core, whether it be the Christian faith, whether it be capitalism, whether it be the medical industrial complex, there's a lot of blanketing us all with this thing or idea or solution. And it's for efficiency. It's because capitalism wants us to be efficient, right? It wants us to be able to move through processes and push things forward and actually sitting with people and saying, okay, what's happening with you as an individual level is not efficient. And it takes a lot of time and it slows things down and you can't sell it and package it and put it on a shelf at Target. Like it's not bad. And I'm interested in doing as much of the opposite of capitalism (laughs) as I can. So if it means that I spend 90 minutes with my clients talking to them about how they can fit 30 minutes of self-pleasure into their week and we look at their calendar and we say, well, this day doesn't work. I have a yoga class on Wednesday nights. Where's it going to fit? Then that's fine. We'll spend the 90 minutes on that. Mm. If it means Mm. getting you closer to a pleasure-centered life, let's do it. I love it. A pleasure-centered life. Can you talk about pleasure practice. I've listened to a number of podcasts with you and I've seen your content and you talk about a pleasure practice. And I think those two terms, someone doesn't necessarily think of the two as going together, right? There's pleasure, which you would initially assume is just kind of like this spontaneous and kind of free flowing thing. And then there's practice, which is, uh, I guess, connotates a sense of discipline or routine or something. Can you talk about what that means? Yeah. I love that you're asking this. My definition and my relationship with a pleasure practice has evolved and I hope that it continues to. So I'll share the version of it that I have right now. (laughs) Um, So when I think about my pleasure practice, I think about carving out time to practice being in my body and being with my pleasure. In this world that's constantly trying to shut you down from connection to your body, that's trying to encourage you to disembody from yourself, it sometimes takes practice, like intentional, mindful practice to be with pleasure. Everyone has had the experience of 
going on a vacation or having a day with a friend and they're so preoccupied, so worried about something else that they're disembodied and they miss it or being so hungry and you order your favorite, we're going to use Chipotle again. We're going to give them this sponsor this podcast. (laughs) You get your favorite Chipotle burrito delivered to you and you just inhale it and you look down and it's gone and you weren't actually even present for the eating of it, even though you were so hungry, right? We've all had experiences like that. So a pleasure practice is something that you do where you intentionally do something that makes you feel good, whether that be self-pleasure that can be mindfully eating. It can be going on a walk or when the weather is just right, listening to this brand new album by your favorite artist that hasn't released music in like five years. Rihanna, I'm looking at you. <laughs> Whatever it is, right? Something that helps you get in your body that feels good and you practice being present to it. And the practice begins when there is resistance. What I mean by that is I would liken it to meditation, right? Many meditation practitioners and guides will say the meditation starts when you notice that you're distracted, when you notice that your thoughts and your emotions have gone off somewhere else, your focus has gone off somewhere else. So let's say you choose to do a self-pleasure practice that is centered around erotic touch or masturbation, right? And you notice yourself rushing, and not taking your time. Or you notice yourself daydreaming and not being present. That's actually when the practice starts is when you get to engage with the resistance, when you get to engage with noticing that your mind has gone somewhere else and is no longer trying to be in the practice. So when I think about a pleasure practice, I think about an opportunity to see how long I can let things feel good before my brain wanders off and how long can I keep bringing myself back to the present moment, back to my body, back to the sensations that are happening. Because ultimately, your senses are how you know you're alive and having a human experience, right? One of the things that has helped me a lot in my sexuality is experimenting with impact play, things like spanking and wax and things like that. Because it's an intense sensation and it makes it very hard for you to be distracted or feel disembodied, right? That sensation is like, wow, I'm here in this room with this person with a giant paddle or a flogger, right? Mm -hmm. Like I can't really think about too much else, right? (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, saying all that to say a pleasure practice can look however you need it to look. It can be centered around erotic touch. It can be centered around self-pleasure and masturbation, or it can be whatever makes you feel the most embodied in yourself. Mm. You talk about authenticity and identity, what are the ways in which, and the folks you you work with, what are the ways in which a person's authentic self can be uh, maybe a wall or a barrier between, or, or, or I should say the inability to realize your authentic self can be a hindrance to pleasure. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So the way that I see this primarily showing up is through performativity. And in this world, in this society, sex is very specific, especially if you add religion to it. Sex is only allowed to happen between a cis man and a cis woman, and they better be married, and the lights better be off, and they better be under the covers, and it better be so they can get pregnant, right? It's for reproductive purposes only. And that's not the vast majority of the sex that's happening out here. <laughs> it just isn't, right? 
And on top of that, even outside of a religious context, there is still guidelines or expectations or a script that we all have absorbed through media, through movies, through pornography about how I, because I was born with certain parts, am expected to show up and you who may be born with certain parts are expected to show up in sex. And then it's this performance of us just trying to do what we thought we were supposed to do, right? Which is inauthentic. It's us performing these roles of I, so I'm a cis woman and I'm supposed to be submissive. I'm supposed to let my partner lead. I'm supposed to make certain sounds at a certain pitch and a certain frequency. I'm supposed to enthusiastically do certain sex acts. I'm supposed to be satisfied and praising of my male partner, regardless of what his performance actually was. I'm never supposed to offer up any critique. And my male partner is supposed to be extremely masculine and dominating and knows what to do with my body, even if he's never seen my pussy before. He has no idea what I like or enjoy. He's going to show me. He's going to tell me. He's going to lead me to pleasure, right? That's just an example of how some of the scripting that a lot of us have absorbed shows up. And when you're performing, you're in your head, you're not present. And if you're in your head and not present, it's impossible to be present to the pleasure that may or may not be happening in your body because the priority is performing good sex or what we think good sex is rather than actually taking that wall down and saying, well, what do we actually want to do? What's going to actually feel good for both of us right now? Where are you at? Oh, you have a stomach ache? Okay, so me riding you is probably not a good idea. What else can, what else can we do to sexually satisfy you besides me sitting on your abdomen, right? Like actually engaging in the realness of what the fuck is going on between you and your partner and doing or sometimes not doing whatever aligns with that. Inauthenticity is a barrier to pleasure because it prioritizes performativity over what's actually happening and what are the actual needs, wants, and desires of the two or more people that are engaging in this experience. Oh. I feel like undoing and unlearning the performative aspect touches back to the ways in which like so many systems that are in place perpetuate and kind of foster performative behavior. Right. And, and this can be sexual performative behavior. Like you see certain like the, the movies and there's so much messaging. that's like, this is the way it needs to be. And just as much as pleasure flies in the face of capitalist systems and white supremacy systems, there is this sort of like way of flying in the face of like the media machine, you know, and all the ways those stories have been told. That's super interesting. Yeah. I don't know about you, but most of my sex education came from like sitcoms and TV and then eventually porn once I got to be able to use the internet by myself, basically. I was born in 92. So around, I don't know, 2000. Two, 2001, I was able to use the internet by myself and get a lot of these questions answered that I was having. And those were the first experiences I had with my own sexuality, with other people having sex. And I was like, oh, this is what, when people talk about sex, like this, this very specific thing is what they are doing. And as I got older, obviously, I learned that there's a lot more <laughs> to it than, than what was presented in, in porn and in movies. Yeah. When you think about the work that you had to do to unlearn like the shame that comes with so many of our upbringing, and when you work with people who experience that shame, what are some of the very day one, A1 processes and things that 
you do to try and help someone move out of that? Because that can be really palpable. It can feel like this, this monumental thing where it's like even having, even saying the word pleasure feels weird. Even saying the word sex with the straight face feels weird. You know, where do you even start? Yeah, I love this question because shame is something that even if you did not grow up in a religious setting, purity culture is so deeply embedded in our society and again in media that you probably ingested and absorbed a lot of it without even realizing that it was rooted in purity culture. And the first line of defense for shame is in an embracing community. You need to find people that are living the life that aligns with the beliefs you want to embrace without shame. You need to find a community that's going to be affirming as you move through shame and as you move through working to change your feeling about certain things. Community is going to be key, whether that's virtual or in person, whether that means you become the pioneer of your friend group that starts to talk about sex with less shame even if your voice is shaking, even if it makes you nervous, find and get rooted in a really, really healthy community. And the second thing I will say, you know, I didn't have this tool until I started studying how to help other people. But the thing that I've seen be very, very supportive to people is practicing empathy for their younger selves, for the version of them that sat in the pews and heard all those things that's now causing them shame. And I do an exercise with many people where we sort of close our eyes and do a visualization and we go back in time or we journal and write, what did you actually need to hear? What did you hear when you were 12, 13, 15 in your youth group about sex, about your sexuality, about being queer, about having sex? And what did you actually need to hear? How can you rewrite that conversation? Like imagine you, adult Portia, right? Goes back in time to 12 year old Portia who heard like being queer is going to send you to hell. And if you have sex before you're married, you're going to hell and you can't be in your flesh and da, 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 da. She comes home and regurgitates all this information. 12 year old Portia does. What would you now today as an adult say to your younger self who's sharing that they just heard this information? How would that have altered your trajectory with your sexuality or whatever shame is following you into adulthood. So thinking about how you can empathize and rewrite some of those conversations, how you can reteach yourself, your younger self about those things can be very supportive. But community above all else, when you're surrounded by people that are mirrors for you and that can say, I walk this path, I made the change and I was able to embrace a new way of thinking that feels comfortable for me that isn't rooted in denial and shame, it can be very affirming just to know like, okay, there are people out there that have figured this out and that are affirming to me while I'm trying to figure this out. I feel like just folks listening to you say that is like an entry point to a broader community just out the gate. That means so much that you would say that. You posted some content uh, that I saw that talks about self-seduction, about seducing yourself. Can you talk to me about that? Because I find that fascinating. Yeah. I, so my point of view and perspective as a coach is that the most important intimate relationship we could ever have is with ourselves. If we do not have a practice or a relationship with intimacy that revolves around our own bodies, it can be really challenging to engage authentically with other people. So let me break down what I mean by that. 
let's say you are experiencing something like sexual shame that comes up when you're with another person. And oftentimes what happens is you'll either end the interaction in frustration and shame and maybe a little embarrassment or whatever emotions come up, or more commonly, you'll just override it and go through with the act and be like, oh my gosh, I feel so much shame after I feel horrible. I feel gross. I feel whatever. Neither of those are going to lead you to a place of more empowerment. They are options, but they are not going to lead you to a place of more empowerment. So my recommendation is that people practice engaging with shame, with guilt, with disgust, with feeling unsafe in their bodies when they are by themselves, right? And this can be done with a trusted system. This can be done like if you're a person that experiences deep emotion after self-pleasure, how can we get you a coach or a friend that you can call after that can be a safe haven for you and someone you can have a conversation with so you're not actually feeling alone while you're working through all of this? But self-seduction and self-intimacy is going to be our first path into moving past the things that are challenging for us. And it's also just a great way to learn what it is that you like and actually authentically enjoy. When you're by yourself, you're going to be willing to try things out that you're just not going to be willing to do when somebody else's eyes are on you or when you feel like the clock is ticking and you're taking so long to get to orgasm or you're taking so long to be prepared for sex. And this other person is, it feels like they're waiting on you, right? When you have a self-pleasure practice or self-seduction and self-intimacy practice, you have the opportunity to explore without limits and that can inform your partnered experiences if you wish, right? Again, going back to some of the scripts that we have about if you're in a cis hetero relationship and you better be, the man that you're with is going to know exactly what you like. Well, that's not the case. I've had sex with a lot of men and like, they don't be knowing for real, you know, like <laughs> I've had to tell them, they just don't know. And that's, that's no shame to any of them. That doesn't make them bad lovers. It's that this is the first time they're approaching this unique body. Right. And I've had a lot of experience with it through having a practice of seducing myself, of learning what it means to make myself feel good learning what it means to create a safe environment for myself so I can be intimate, so I can explore pleasure without having guilt and shame and all of these other things interfere. You mentioning the notion like this is a unique body. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've ever really thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. You go, oh, like my body is entirely unique, one of one, baby. <laughs> like, and therefore it is worthy, right? And deserving of, of that pleasure. And I think for so many of us brought into this idea where it's like, I, you don't really feel all that unique. I mean, you feel kind of unique, but like not really. I think embracing that makes embracing pleasure that much easier. Yeah. It makes me think of, and this is no shade. This is no shade to like Cosmo or anything, but a lot of the like, tips or even like GQ magazine or men's health, whenever there are these articles or conversations about sex, we're given like 17 tips that are going to blow his mind. It's like, do you know that? <laughs> mm -hmm, like maybe mm -hmm. the person that I'm with doesn't like any of this at all because that's their unique body. Or like these are the erogenous zones of the body. Like maybe like the middle of my forehead just mm, does it for me. And that's not weird if it does, right? Your mm. entire body, I like to think of your entire body as an erogenous zone, but until you give yourself a chance to 
pleasure map and explore and figure out what feels good and what kind of pressure you like and what kind of sensation and touch you like in your particular body, it can feel like you are in this like blanketing experience of like, well, this is what's supposed to feel good. This is what's supposed to work. And instead, you have the opportunity to explore your unique body and figure out, well, what feels good for me outside of these like hacks, sex hacks and things that are thrust upon me. Yeah. You mentioned pleasure mapping. That's not something I'm familiar with. Can, can you talk about what that is? Yeah. So pleasure mapping is an exercise. If you Google pleasure mapping, you'll find tons of outlines on how to do it. But essentially, it's the process of sitting with your body. I like to encourage people to get lots of devices, a silk scarf, a spoon, a wooden spoon. Uh, if you have a feather in your house, a piece of ice, a warm towel, and allow yourself to explore your body head to toe with each of those little knickknacks, different pressures, different sensation. What does it feel like to scratch yourself? What does it feel like to tickle yourself from head to toe and see like, oh, it actually, I'm the the dimples at the my lower back, like that really does it for me. Who would have known, right? So it's literally you creating a map of where are the pleasure centers of my body and how do they like to be touched for your unique body? For your unique body. That is so great. And I, I, I just love how there is just this overwhelming sense of love for yourself that it pours through everything that you're saying. And it just, just is this through line that's weaving through. And I feel like you kind of emanate that. And I think that carries over into the people that you work with, Portia. Thank you. I appreciate that. On this side of a faith change, right? You went through that fork in the road and you could have gone minister and instead you decided to go sex educator, right? Um, on this side of that, what have you found, including pleasure or, outs- or including sexual pleasure or outside of it? What have you found as far as practice, experience? What have you found that maybe scratches that itch that maybe church did once upon a time? Like what makes you, what smells like grandma's cooking in a different way on this side of everything? Oh, I love that question. I really do. For me, it is, so every once in a while, I host moon circles with my friends at my house. I'm not an astrologer at all, but I do try to do a moon ritual every full moon and new moon. It's a practice that I have that helps me stay on top of the things that I want to call in for myself and that I'm creating in my life. And I like to share that with my friends because I just, maybe it's a church kid thing. Maybe it's the woo-woo kind of witchy spiritual person that I've become. But I believe that our intentions and our prayers and our manifestations, whatever word you want to use, are amplified when we come together, when three or more are gathered, Mm. so to speak, right? So I like to share that with my friends. And even though it has nothing to do with Christianity, it has nothing to do with faith, it's just us following nature as a cue and a reminder to check in with our goals, check in with what we're what we're calling into our lives and what we're trying to create. That moment when I have my friends over, we're eating, we're drinking wine, there are candles lit, the lights are low, everybody's got their journal out, and we're like listening to singing bowls and talking about the just badass things we want to do with our lives. That to me gives me the same sensation. And I don't know if it's that specific event or if it's just community in general. Other than sexuality and sexual empowerment, recentering our society around communal living and community, I think is going to be the thing that changes how we approach 
life and capitalism and all of the systems of oppression that we are fighting. Because when we actually look to our neighbors, uh, to the left and the right of us, and we say, you matter and like you speak a different language. I live in Bushwick, right? So half the people I live around, they, their first language is not English, <laughs> right? Like, But I care about these people, even though we don't really speak, you know? Mm. These are the people that are around me and I care about them. If we can all get to that point and we can recenter community, I think the entire world will change. So yeah, moon circles give me churchy vibes. And just anytime I get to feed people and have them at my house and share community and share space with them, it scratches the itch. I love it. I love it. Portia, where can people support you, work with you? Do you have any cool things that you want to plug? Can you share all the things? Yeah. So first of all, thank you so much again for reaching out and having me on here. I really love this conversation. Anyone who's listening, you can find me at the Portia Brown on all social media platforms, TikTok, Instagram is usually where I hang out the most, Twitter as well. And that's Portia, P-O-R-T-I-A, brown, like the color. I do have a blog and I do offer one-on-one coaching. I primarily work with women, femmes, gender expansive folks. At this time, I don't work with cis men, but if you want to be referred out, I can send you to some amazing coaches and guides that can help you. If you are a cis dude who wants help in this realm of sexuality, I'm not doing anything too cool right now. I'm getting ready to do some grad school applications. Nice. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sort of um, scaling down my business to make room for that. But I do have spots for people that want to work one-on-one in the coming months. So if you go to my website, PortiaBrownCoaching.com, you can learn more about that. Amazing. Portia Brown, this has been an absolute pleasure. I'm so grateful for what you do. Oh, hey, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> look at you. Sneaky. You slid it in. <laughs> Thank you. I told you. She was great. She was great. I always love when I have a chance to ask folks. I I, I think um, as I was talking to Portia, she was kind of like, you know, I I didn't really quite realize that these sort of conversations or, or, or she hadn't really visited these sort of conversations in her own work. It's not something that she probably bumps up against too, like this particular flavor of like post-evangelical, what the fuck was that-ness, you know, that DRCK is, is so known for. And so it was cool to kind of have her share parts of her story that maybe doesn't come up often in most of her customer or client interactions rather. Yeah, I'm just so pleased to have made a friend in Portia. I'm so grateful for your listening to this, Portia. I'm so grateful for your work. So thank you for this. This is an absolute blast. So listen, okay, there's a couple updates I need to present you with, okay? Uh, last time we spoke, I was in the land of fun employment. Y'all, I was fun employed. I got laid off. I got brought into a meeting with an HR professional who was just doing their job, but they broke some bad news. And it forced me to go into a, a spiral for about a month. Uh, I was taking a lot of sad naps, eating a lot of Cheez-Its. I was also incredibly disciplined in some ways. I had basically rigged myself a system. Uh, I spoke to my brother and they said like, it takes 80, which is absolutely bonkers to me. They say it takes like 80 Hail Mary job applications to get one offer. And that's after numerous interviews across the board and like numerous recruiter conversations and hiring manager. If any of you out there who are on the job hunt or if you have been on a job hunt, if you have been laid off or if you're currently laid off, it is fucking brutal out there. It's brutal. You get ghosted. People never seem to know what they want. It, it was just, it was hard to stay positive. But 
stay positive, I did because I am stubbornly insistent that things work out. And I am pleased to say that I have had two cool opportunities come out of the woodwork in this month of transition. One is an actual full-time job, classic nine to five situation at a consulting firm. And I'm really excited to be there. It was a really kind of a cool story that I got to do something that was very similarly aligned to my old job, but just like cooler with more money. You know what I'm saying? But that was a great opportunity. And then, so I, I accepted that. And then also I had this cool creative opportunity to kind of grow some creative capital and kind of stretch myself uh, in, in a different way. So in addition to getting this day job, this nine to five bread and butter job, which I'm starting today, <laughs> today is my first day. Uh, in addition to that, I had this cool opportunity to join the team over at a wristwatch online publication. Those of you who know me know that I'm a wristwatch boy. I'm a bit of a nerd. I have made some friends in that space just by kind of lurking. <laughs> and just if, if you say on this platform that you're into watches enough, you start to get other wristwatch nerds. So if you're into to watches, slide into my DMs because I have like a little cool chat going on with other, other bad Apple watch nerds called the timekeepers. Just slide in my DMs. I'll add you. So I had this cool opportunity. Basically, the chief editor reached out to me saying, hey, like I heard you got laid off. Like, I'm really sorry. But if you want to like connect, you know, there might be some cool like side gig opportunities if you want to get into writing. And I was like, man, do I want to get into writing? I don't know. I've done some writing, but it's not really my, my but I'll, I'll, I'll definitely consider it. And then I said, but if you and your team were looking to like stand up a podcast or like needed some creative assistance, like I know a guy. And so, yeah, they, they reached out to me. Um, it's the good folks over at Wrist Enthusiast, which is the name of the online publication. And so basically, I had this cool opportunity to come on as a creative producer. So I'm going to be helping them stand up a podcast, which will probably launch in the next month called Wrist Enthusiast Radio. And then I'm going to be helping them kind of build up some YouTube presence because that's kind of the bread and butter of like the watch industry is a lot of it has to do with kind of YouTube content, um, as well as like reels and stuff. So it was just kind of cool. Like I went from having nothing and being like, what the fuck do I want to be when I grow up? What do I want to do to now having like a cool job that seems promising that's going to pay the bills and take care of the family. And then also kind of as a kicker is this cool opportunity to stretch and flex some creative muscles and do something that I haven't really done. That's a little bit unfamiliar, um, but definitely something that sparks my interest. So I just wanted to provide that. I've had people just an overwhelming response of kindness and kind words and gestures. And there's so many folks who, you know, who you are, who reached out to me just asking um, how you could offer support. And as while I was in the land of fun employment, and I will not forget it. And if you are in a position where you've been laid off, I hope you would reach out to me or, you know, whatever I can do to help you because it's, it's brutal. And uh, we live in a capitalist hellscape. That's neither here nor there. <laughs> so anyway, um, so that's the that's the cool news. So I'm really, really thrilled. I in fact, I'm gonna be flying out on a business trip. Ooh, business trip. Ooh, jet setter. Mm, that's me. Jet Setter Adrian Gibbs going to be visiting the great state of Wisconsin. Ever been to Wisconsin before? Should be fun, right? I'm sure it'll be fun. Well, speaking of fun things, I'm going to land the plane, guys, gals, and pals. I'm going to land the plane with the final segment of the night. You love it. I love it. We all know it. It's called Sip, Smoke, Read. Sip, smoke, sip, smoke, read. So you know we read that shit. Only sip the finest party lit. On my couch and I be up. Listen to these idiots, but here you keep on listening, and here 
you I so listen Made your pain corner to the latest book Browse over, watch a show, just take a look Probably cartoons They call me little fishy for my hooks Now you gotta sip, smoke, sip, smoke, pee All right, so as you may know, Sip, Smoke, Read is a section of the show where I talk about what am I sipping? What am I smoking? What am I watching, listening to, participating in, and enjoying? What am I doing to get myself through these trying times that are year of our Lord 2023? I'll start with watching. I am up to date with Succession. I think the final season of Succession, it's on HBO Max, soon to be called Max. Ooh. If you're not watching Succession, it's like, it's hard to explain how like corporate drama can be entertaining but it is quite entertaining specifically because all of the characters are so unlikable and they're so flawed (laughs) in some ways and it's just so compelling to watch the writing is good some of the episodes that they just had were just so well directed and the storytelling was so interesting to me uh and there's a lot of cool watches all these folks are wearing like million dollar watches i'm like okay and watches that i will never even see in real life let alone own um great show Another great show, Jack Ryan, season three, I believe. Yep. Uh, with John Krasinski of Jim Halpert slash The Office fame. I was kind of like a Tom Clancy fanboy back in the day. There was a book called Rainbow Six that I was really, really into. And I don't know why. I just saw that John Krasinski was in like an action show and I decided to hop in. And sure enough, it just kind of sucked me in. So it's kind of light. It's relatively quick moving. It's kind of like spy television that you can just watch casually while eating junk food. It's great. So check out Jack Ryan. And lastly, Carnival Row is back. I didn't realize Carnival Row is back. I just was like perusing and I was like, oh man, I really miss Carnival Row. Whatever happened on that show? When are they going to circle back? And I looked and I was like, oh wait, it's been out for months. So I decided to jump, uh, listen, I decided to jump back in to Carnival Row. Carnival Row stars Orlando Bloom and another actor, and it's impossible to say, Cara Delavigne. Cara Delavigne. Cara Delavigne. Is that how you pronounce it? Apologies in advance, Cara, if you're listening to this, which I'm sure you are. Um, so the setting, I'm sure I've talked about this before, Carnival Row, the setting is like Sherlockian, like Sherlock Holmes Industrial England. Like that's the vibe. You know, kind of like Cockney accents and bowler derbies and waistcoats, right? But the actual world is populated by fantasy characters in like a Narnia, Lord of the Rings type gamut of characters. So that's like checks a lot of boxes for me. All right. Orlando Bloom, check. Right. Sherlock Holmes energy, check. Right. Fantasy characters, check. So if you're looking for a show and if, if you like me have a very weird ass Venn diagram of interests, you will probably love Carnival Row. So definitely check that out. That is on Amazon Prime. I love that I, I am promoting all of these things. They really should be paying me. All of these promotions are non-sponsored and it's too late now. I'm in the last season. It's too late to get all the money that I so gladly deserve. Um, <laughs> what else? So there's a book that I read that my brother turned me on to and I read it in the height of my unemployment, in the height of my laid offness. And that book is called So Good They Can't Ignore You. I thought it was interesting because the book kind of talks about this idea like you want to find the dream job. And I, as a raging Enneagram 4 who lives perpetually in a romantic world of unrealism and gets disappointed frequently, I have like, you know, and and I'm a classic millennial where they're like, anything is possible. And then you're like, JK, 
you're going to hate your life. That's a lie. I don't hate my life, but you're definitely like peddled this like romantic ideal as you're growing up. And when you become an adult and you start looking at what you want to do with your life from like a career standpoint, there's always this thing in the back of my mind, like, how am I going to find that unicorn job? Like, how am I going to find this perfect career? Like, how am I going to find this thing? And interestingly, this book kind of turns that on its head and says like, instead of trying to like decide what your dream career is and just go for that dream career, like instead of putting all of your eggs in like the the, the dream job basket, as dangerous as because they say it can either be incredibly disappointing after you've built this all up and you've done every decision you've made has been towards this one dream career and you finally arrive and it's like not nearly as great as you expected, or you never actually make it to that dream career and you feel like an utter failure, right? Those are kind of like the most common things that this person found in the research. And so this author contends that instead of just pursuing this sort of unicorn dream job, instead like work really hard to curate career capital is what he calls it, which is basically like work really hard to develop your specific set of skills in the words of Liam Neeson, the things that make you distinctly you that you can bring to you anywhere and only do that, like be like brutally focused on sharpening those tools that are yours distinctly, you know? So like getting really, really good. And like, so like for me, I'm like, okay, what am I really, really good at is like, I feel like I put in countless hours into not only podcasting and creating content, but also like interviewing as well as like building social media platforms and like developing social media strategy. So like their whole thing is like lean really heavily into those skills instead of being like just typing into LinkedIn, like how to be a podcaster or whatever, you know? And the idea is that if you become fucking good enough at what you do, that you might be able to create a role or a job or a career or a life that leverages these different things that might not necessarily be obvious to you. And you can still find absolute fulfillment in that. I don't know. I, I, I thought it was an interesting book. It helped me a lot as far as like coming to terms with my own lack of a job. And it made me go, okay, like I don't need to put so much pressure on myself or the universe or get myself down for not having this like magic job that will make me happy. Instead, like, let me just focus on being as fucking good at what I do as possible and being really brutally honest with myself with the things I'm not good at and the skills that I don't have and working to shore those up in the meantime. So if, if any of that interests you, I went on a bit of a tirade. If any of that interests you, the book is called So Good They Can't Ignore You and the author is Cal Newport. So yeah, check that out. Outside of that, I have some coffees. I have some coffees. My brother for my birthday, and I forgot to mention this, so I'm mentioning like a month later, my brother was kind enough to send me two coffees from Onyx. Onyx is a really outstanding roaster. I don't know where Onyx is based out of. Uh, again, there's no way of knowing. <laughs> so someone's screaming at their, at their headphones. Anyway, I, he, I'm literally looking on Google and it's not there. He sent me uh, two different coffees from Onyx Coffee Lab. One was called, uh, what was it, a natural Ethiopia Haisa Alocho. And one was a natural Ethiopia Ilabensa Chantawene. So those both were really, really good. I love like a natural Ethiopia coffee, really fruit forward, really bright, really floral, has a really floral nose and has a kind of a light body, really refreshing. It's a good like morning coffee, sure, but it's like a really good like afternoon coffee when it's hot outside and you just want a coffee, um, but you don't want to feel like you're just chugging coffee sludge. <laughs> I, I love a light roast, uh, East African coffee. 
And then this other coffee that I did get in that I do know the location of, shout out to Slow Bloom Coffee Cooperative. Special shout out to friend of the show and friend of mine, Melody, for sending over a coffee. So, so Slow Bloom is a coffee collaborative that is based out of Redlands, California. And it's like worker-owned specialty coffee shops. That to me is the way to do it. It is so cool, their model where it's like the franchise or whatever like is owned, the organization is owned by the workers, which I think is really outstanding. The, the two coffees I got, one was a white wine fermented coffee. The origin was Colombia. And it was a natural white wine fermentation process, which is absolutely bonkers. The notes on the package, and I, I always try not to read the notes on the package because I'm afraid it's going to like impart too much specificity into what I'm drinking, but it's pretty much dead on. The notes that they pulled from it was white grape, cranberry, and dark chocolate. That was super, super rad. And then the second that I had after that was a pink bourbon honey and red fruit. The origin is from Colombia as well. I think that was a honey process, and that was like drinking strawberries. It was like kind of like straw. It was like just an explosion of, of strawberry. So if you're into strawberry milk, <laughs> get that coffee. If it's still around, I don't know. I feel like it flies off, off the shelf. So shout out. Thank you, Melody, for the coffee. That was absolutely outstanding. Thank you, Derek, for the coffee. Thanks, buddy boy. Absolutely outstanding. Oh, and then one last thing. I needed to buy myself a suit. As I said, they're flying me out on this business trip at my new job. And I, I was told that I kind of like, hey, this might be like a suit situation. I do not own a suit. I have worn uh, soft pants, as I like to call it, for the past, the better part of three years. And so I was like, okay, well, I need to get a suit. And so I've been kind of wanting to get one anyway. My brother has a bachelor party in Miami that I need to, I want to look kind of fly for. And then he's actually getting married this September up in New Jersey. And I'm like, okay, I should probably have something to wear for that anyway. And I kind of hopped around, looked at different places. I didn't really like any of the suits that I found at like the mall. And I'm also very particular. I'm like, I knew what I wanted. I wanted like a suit with like some texture and not a lot of shine, like a soft shoulder that was like tailored really well to my frame. I have like kind of small shoulders and I wanted something that like, there was a very specific energy that I wanted and I had no idea what to get. And then I discovered a brand called Suit Supply. Specifically, there was a, a location down in downtown Miami called Suit Supply. So I freaking drove out almost in like 40 minutes to get to this place, but the offerings were amazing. The prices were expensive, but like the quality to me is worth the price. I'm definitely, those of you who know me, you know that I'm team buy once, cry once, like buy the right thing the first time, choose something that is timeless, not trendy, and then it'll last you and it'll pay itself back basically. So that's what I did. So I bought like a suit and I bought like some shirts and like some trousers and I feel like I look really fucking sharp, right? Well, then I find out, I get a call with my direct manager on my first day. And she's like, hey, um, I know they said that this was like a suit situation. It's not. Don't wear a suit. <laughs> you will be overdressed. And that is not the energy you want going into this thing. So in, in true classic Adrian Gibbs fashion, I spent a lot of money on a suit that I'm not going to need. But whatever. Is it the story of my life? Yes. Am I going to let it get me down momentarily? And then I'm going to be over it. Well, speaking of being over it, that's pretty much over. <laughs> I don't think I have anything else I have to add. Everyone, thank you for listening to this episode. Um, we're kind of at the half, almost at the halfway mark with this season. I have some really cool conversations coming up, and I'm really eager for you to hear the chats that I'm having with other friends and guests 
on the Dirty Rotten Church Kids podcast. If you want to connect, go to dirtyrottenchurchkids.com for things like socials and merch. Grab it while it's here. If you would like to support me on the Patreon to get access to kind of video content of these conversations I'm having, um, it's behind the paywall, but you can absolutely check it out. There's also a Patreon-only Discord channel, and, and that's where you get the bonus content as well. Thank you for this. Thank you for the support. I'm having a lot of fun. I was like down in the dumps, and I, I kind of trusted myself that it was going to pass. And today I'm like feeling really good. And I have a feeling this too is going to pass. So I'm just going to lean in to my good energy that I'm feeling today. And I hope in you listening to this episode, you have picked up on some of my positivity and it hopefully it brightens up your day. Or if it hasn't brightened up your day and you're in a shitty mood like I was last episode, I hope that this has been able to sit with you and just be there with you and all of the craziness that this world is bringing to us right now. So everyone, thank you for listening to this. I appreciate you deeply. Keep up the dirty work. And remember, it's all gonna be okay. Huge thanks to Portia for joining me on this episode. The deliberate pursuit of pleasure as a practice has so many implications for what we believe about ourselves and how we interact with the world. As we near the halfway mark of this final season, I hope that you find those moments of pleasure, that you tend to your own garden, and that you take care of your energy and peace. No, I'm no doctor, but it seems to me that we all have an obligation to the public health to track down anyone who gives us a disease, inform them of it, and take overwhelming revenge on that person. Again, I'm no doctor, I'm just a normal guy who enjoys revenge. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.